You're listening to the Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle Dolan as she interviews a range of prominent leaders about their experiences. Her guests share stories about challenges they have faced during their career, as well as important learning opportunities or moments of insight. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are encouraged to embrace authenticity and real communication. Well, welcome to another edition of Authentic Leadership. This is the first one for 2022, and I am excited to have Julie Rinsky with me today. Julie is the Executive Business Banking Manager of Regional and Agribusiness in Australia for National Australia Bank. Um, She's also Chair of Medfin, which uh, we'll have a bit of a chat about, and she's also heavily involved in the, well, not heavily, but involved with the big issue. So I want to talk to you about that. So welcome, Julie. Oh, thanks, Raoul. It's great to be here. Yeah, very excited. So I love to start these uh, podcast interviews with a little bit of let's just get to know you a bit more. So where did you grow up? Oh, I'm pretty proud of where I grew up. I was born in Busselton, which is country WA, and I went to school in Mandemont, which is also country WA. So you're, you, I mean, the fact that you're in business banking and in regional and agri, this is this is in your blood. It's in my blood. It's in my blood, and I've always, you know, I've always gravitated back to everything regional. Um, you know, I've done, I've been fortunate, done lots of really interesting things, but I'm always drawn to regional Australia. Mm. I um. Uh, I used to work at NAB for 17 years and one of my roles at NAB was working very closely with the agribusiness team. Uh, this is probably 20, 25 years ago. And I um, I just really loved working with them because they seem to be so much more fun. Yeah, more fun and more real. Yeah, and I, maybe that's why I love them too, more fun and more real, which is um, absolutely. Um, so what? take us right back. What was your very first job that you actually got paid for? Oh, look, you know, I'm a banker through and through. At the ripe old age of uh, 15 or, you know, year 10, I decided that uh, I'd love to work in a bank and I applied for a couple of roles and, and uh, was fortunate to get uh, offered uh, a bank role and, and it was this wonderful title called a junior. Um, and it was, you know, you've got to burn the rubbish in the incinerator, you've got to make the boss a cup of tea, you've got to do all those sorts of things. But I was very excited. And, and it was one of those things where I thought, oh, I'll just do this for a little while. But then it got in my blood and I'm a banker through and through now. Mm. Yeah, I remember my first uh, year at uh, National Australia Bank was a trainee computer operator. And uh I spent the whole year just changing printing paper and changing tape cartridges in IT. But, yeah, the incinerator, that would have been fun. I would have loved that. You know, it was fun and it's amazing how much fun, except the only issue was it was in a country town and the and the manager used to park his car there and I was always concerned because, you know, we stack up the incinerator. I thought, gosh, if I set fire to his car, then I'll be in trouble. But uh, <laughs> thankfully that didn't happen. So I am I am now intrigued because I remember the incinerator at the back of our you know house burning off everything. What was what was the bank burning? <laughs> Documents maybe? <laughs> no, not quite, not quite, Ralph. But you know, 
um, you know, just rubbish, you know, in terms of, you know, papers and probably people's, you know, lunch wrapper or whatever, you know, I just had to collect the bins and, you know, because I was the junior um, and, yeah, but it was great fun and everyone was really, you know, good and it was far more relaxed and, you know, and I laughed, not, not that it was when I was happening, but I saw ashtrays there and I had visions of people sort of smoking on the teller's line and, you know, and then, you know, there, there used to be, in, in, you know, they used to have guns and you think, what the hell? Oh, the good old days, or maybe not so the good. I, rem- I Again, I remember one of my very first roles too it was in an office um, as a trainee computer operator again. I spent a lot of years being a trainee. Um, but there were so many um, women in the office that just had those ashtrays and would like chain smoke all day and the ashtrays would fill up. It was disgusting. You know, you can't even imagine it now. I just can't. Yeah. No, no. Anyway, so you said you always wanted a job at at a bank. Why was that? What what drove you to that? Did you did you know at the time there could be a a role in a bank that was working with um, agri and regional? No, not in my wildest dreams. But I always found them. I always thought of a bank as being helpful. And um, and when I say that, you know, help people achieve their dreams, you know, whether it is buy a business, sell a business, retire, you know, help with, a, you know, sadly a death in the family or, you know, help me with the paperwork. I always thought it was a really helpful job and I wanted to be helpful. Mm. What what uh, what year or decade was that? Was that early 80s or? I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it was, you know, back in the 80s, banks were seen as, you know, almost... Uh, the cornerstone of um, the community. And people used to dress up, I remember, you know, being, you know, just sort of in the lower ranks, but watching people dress up to come and see the bank manager, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Like someone really important. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, so where, where do you live now? Tell us a bit about where you live now, what's your family situation? Yeah, I live in Bayside, Victoria. I've travelled, you know, I've done lots of different things. I've, you know, worked offshore and, and you know, in a number of different states, but I'm based in Bayside, Victoria. And, you know, and it's a pleasure to be part of my business. I often think about, you know, where where should I live given I've got regional and agri um, as my as my business. But given that I do spend a fair bit of time at airports and planes, et cetera, um, you know, it wouldn't be practical to just pick somewhere like Moree or... Mm or whatever because then that you know ability to get out quickly and do stuff makes it quite hard so um yeah I I, I just live in a little townhouse and got lovely neighbors and you know all of the above and you know I feel incredibly blessed yeah now your role uh, you know looking after regional and agri for Australia like what is like how broad is that like what geographically what are the regions you're looking after and and I guess how often would you be traveling pre-COVID of course oh not only pre-COVID I was out this week don't you worry about that Ralph (laughs) Um, so uh, yeah I look after pretty much um, in the main capitals of Sydney and um, Adelaide and Victoria and Perth I look at every I look after all businesses be they regional businesses or agribusinesses 50 kilometers outside of the metropolitan then I also have in totality Tasmania Northern Territory and the ACT so I have that whole catchment there so um, and anybody in in those regional communities who runs a business could be a dry cleaner could be a chemist could be you know a coffee shop and as well as the agriculture sector as well so my, my 
balance sheet is probably 50-50. And the reason that I really like that mix is, you know, you would know yourself, regional Australia is, you know, a community and therefore you can't say I only look after one part and not the other part because, you know, when a community is going through drought, they're all going through drought. Um, and, you know, when a natural disaster hits, it hits them all. So I love the fact that we can look after that whole market instead of saying something like, oh, no, that's I only do agriculture. If you haven't got cows, I'm not interested. Um, whereas in actual fact, I think I love the fact that, you know, because the chances are, you know, um, the wife might be running the farm and the husband might be running the general store, you know, and the they're interlinked and and that's how I want my bankers and my experts to support regional Australia. Mm. What is, um, what's, what's one of the perhaps, well, what's what, all the places you've travelled, what's, is there one you love? Like, is there one you love going back to? I can't say that because it's like saying you've got a favourite child. You can't we, all, we all do. I know, but having said that, you know what, I just I just love them all on the basis that every community is different. Like, you know, I was in Roma um, last year and, you know, I, I thought that was just fascinating. And then I, you know, I'll go to Moree and, you know, I think that's fascinating. And I think what it is is these each of these communities are built on something different. You know, it might be beef cattle, it might be cotton, it might be citrus or whatever, and, and they've all got a story. And I love the fact that they were started, you know, by quite often immigrants who who went out there. If you think about Mildura and they used to have the little fruit blocks and all of those things. And then just how that community has evolved and how that town has grown. Um, And, yeah, so I I just think I learn all the time. Yesterday I was, or this week I was in Ballarat. You look at Ballarat, that's just booming at the moment. And then I went further on to Dunkeld. And Dunkeld's this beautiful little town that used to have 500, now I've got 700, got a full school, got all of those things, very big on, you know, protecting the environment. Every every little town has a story. Mm, yeah, no. I know. I, I figure you might be a fan of the TV um, show Backroads. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> love it. It is a good one. Um, I've just thought of another critical question I need to ask you. Do you uh, do you wear RM Williams and a Cobra? Do you have an Cobra and an I RM Williams? Cobra, but I have RM Williams and I have the one because I'm only short. I have the one with a bit of a heel. Um, you know, anything that will give me an advantage, but I do love an RM Williams and I just I'd love an Cobra, but I have to get to the stage where I get one that fits me properly. Otherwise, I'll look like all hat and no head. <laughs> I actually got an Akubra last year for my birthday and I love it. Uh, yeah. Afterwards, I'll send you I'll send you where I got it from because there's oh. this place in Collingwood where they fit it to your head. Oh, that, that's what I need. That's yeah. What I- yeah, cool. My um, my daughter has just uh, got into uh, Melbourne Uni doing agri science, and I said, "Well, we've got to buy you an Akubra and some RM Williams just to yeah. fit in." I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you ever needs to spend some time doing practical stuff, just let us know. I will. I will. So going back to your early, either growing up or your early career, who was the sort of biggest influence on you, would you say? Oh, look, I, I think um, without doubt it would have been my gorgeous mum. So, you know, I uh, my mum was a single mum for a period of time. I had an older brother. My mum and dad divorced when I was just nine months old. And uh, and then, you know, mum uh, sadly didn't enjoy the best of health. She had a blood disease and had her legs amputated. But 
um, you know, the reality of it is she was a super strong woman, super independent woman and, you know, got on and did stuff. And so when you've got a role model like that, you know, it makes you feel like anything's possible. So I was really blessed. And mum has uh, still, you know, I've lost mum, but um, she has a beautiful sister. And, you know, between them, I saw this power of strong women and how they supported each other and all of that. You know, mum remarried and I'm blessed to have, you know, two uh, two other siblings as well. But, um, you know, it was always pretty challenging. But I never felt that, you know, I never felt that because mum just believed in us as children, like anything we wanted to do. She, yeah, you can do that. You know, even though she knew that we might not be successful, but she, we had her backing. And then, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've been so fortunate to have some really, really good, predominantly males, actually, you know, who just had enormous belief in me. And just, you know, when I thought I couldn't do something, they always made me feel like one, I was safe, because they'd make sure I'd be okay. But secondly, um, you know, they made they they made me believe that they thought I was more capable than I ever thought I was capable. Mm. It's it's really good when you've got people around you that believe in you before you believe in yourself. That's yeah. that's that's priceless when you've got people around you that are like that. And and, and it, yeah, it sounds like your mum was an amazing woman. Um, yeah, champion. Yeah. What what's been some of the biggest challenges you've faced in your career? Oh, look, I think in the early days, I went down the path of um, lending and, you know, not many females did. You know, if, if you think about traditional sort of bank roles, there were, you know, you know, do the telling role and then manage the office, etc. But I went down the path of lending and, you know, I, it, it was it was a time where maybe community wasn't, you know, they'd think, well, what would this girl know um and that could have been you know that could have been some of the customers who felt that traditionally it was a male who was deciding whether they'd lend them money or not so that was a bit of a traditional thing and there was also a little bit uh, you know within the hierarchy of the organization as well but you know I think they weren't necessarily challenges per se they were just part of society at that time because you know I, I, I worked in Fiji for a period of time as well as that sort of country head and you know the culture is different there women whether we like it or not women were deemed to be you know different and you know maybe not in authority um, roles etc so I think over time that's all changed but as you're coming through it it feels it feels hard and it feels unfair and it feels all of those things but you know you've just got to there's always a way one of my managers told me you know previously is that you know you don't always have to run into the brick wall Julie you can go over you can go under you can go around and uh, I think you know that that is something I try and practice yeah it doesn't surprise me that that's your response to the question about challenge considering the previous um, response you had about you know your mother and your your good supporters around you saying almost like you've got this, you've got this, you'll get through it. So, yeah, excellent. So, okay, so there's some of the challenges and how you face it. Is there is there a highlight or a couple of highlights of your career that you would you would cite? Oh, you know what? I you know I I think I've had so many on the basis of you know at times where I you know I, I think it's a common trait, particularly more in women, is that we never think we're ready. You know, oh, I'm just not ready. And, you know, I always say to my team now is good people have always got unfinished business. And I always felt that. But, you know, I, I love the the fact that, you know, I was I was sometimes, you know, sort of 
cajoled into to doing things that I would have thought, gosh, you know, I'm not ready or it's not time or I haven't spent here long enough. And so, you know, I, I've done lots of different things. Like I said, I've worked in Papua New Guinea and I've worked in Fiji and um, and I've done lots of different roles under the, under the roof of a financial institution. And I think the part that I've always been just really proud of is the fact that I felt like I've had support around me. And sometimes you just don't know what you're capable of. And I'm, you know, I've been pretty surprised at myself to think, gosh, you know, I I, I nailed that. You know, I never thought I could. Um, But, you know, I think to be really frank, my happy place is customers and people. You know, I just feel that. And I had an opportunity to relieve in the chief people officer or do us a comment at, at NAB. And it was a fabulous role. And, you know, it takes very high skills, but it, it's not my happy place on the basis of I'm a bit removed from a customer and I'm a bit removed from, a you know, real accountability in terms of growth and sales and all of those things, which I think brings out the best in me. Yeah, I, I remember when you were appointed as, as sort of the chief people officer sort of um, in a caretaker role for um, a short time but ended up being a longer time. And I, I thought that, and I thought I thought to myself at the time I hadn't even met you or didn't know you, but I thought you must have something really good for them to take someone from the business banking and put them in that caretaker role Um and you'd only been at NAB for about 12 months, I think you were saying. So do, do you think it was um, maybe a fresh set of eyes that they were looking for or just capable hands with knowing you were a good leader and you were good with people but you also had the business background? Do you, what do you think the main reason for your appointment into that was? Well, I can't believe you're asking me to answer that, you know. <laughs> I, um, you know, I'm sure like most people, when I looked at that, I laughed. I thought, what are we thinking? However, it comes back to, I think, support and people who believe in you. Because at that time, Phil Kronikan, um was on the board and then stepped up to be the CEO. And I'd worked with Phil at Westpac and he knew me and I knew him. And one of our board members, a really fabulous female leader, Anne Sherry, was also on the board. And unbeknown to me, and I knew Anne from Westpac days as well and um, unbeknown I think you know they at a board meeting must have decided that you know that I was okay for that and that just comes down to you know the fact that you know I had such amazing support you know two fabulous you know Australian leaders just believing in me where I'm sort of looking at this laughing thinking what are you thinking um but you know it is that classic of that wonderful belief that people have and you know and conversations that happen when you're not even in the room yeah well that's that's where a lot of the appointments are made aren't they so you Mm -hmm. might and I always sort of say that your brand are the stories that people are sharing about you when you're not in the room and uh, so you've you've clearly got a strong brand and and yeah it must it must have been I would imagine it's pretty cool, like you said, to have two really brilliant industry leaders say, no, that's that's who we're appointing. But I also feel there must have been a, a response of, really? Are you serious? I can't believe it. But anyway, um, uh, we did it and I did it for 10 months and uh, and then they got a proper CPO, which is exactly what they needed. Exactly. Excellent. So how, like, you've been around for a while. How has your leadership changed, do you think, through as you've got older and wiser? 
Oh, look, I think without doubt, you grow into leadership. I certainly have found that, you know, when when you first get appointed, you know, I remember sitting first at my very first desk and had it all set up, you know, my stapler, my ruler, everything was beautifully there, etc. you know, and I was ready. But, you know, I think, you know, naively it was how do I make my boss happy versus how do I build a high-performing team? And uh, And I certainly worked out that, you know, making your boss happy is great, but if you if you're not if you haven't built a team and you haven't connected with them, etc., then you know it's all going to end in tears before you know it. Um, so I think you know you grow into it, and you know I, I think I don't know you get more relaxed with age comes wisdom, <laughs> and um, you know one of the things I say I uh, I take my role seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. Nice, nice, yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of crappy stuff that happens getting old, but um, wisdom and just not taking yourself too seriously is one of the benefits, I think. Um, so let's talk about, so I wanted to talk about, you know, your leadership style, but also your values. Has there been, you know, because we all come into leadership, we all have our own values. Has there been a time in your career where you've felt that your personal values have been challenged or weren't aligned with with the company? Oh, look, I, I think so. And I am very values-based and very, very values-driven. And I think the risk we all run when we say that is, is that they're your values, that they're not necessarily anyone else's. And, you know, we can all get a bit pious about it, can't we? Go, oh, that is so wrong. Yes, according to you, Julie, that does feel wrong, but according to the bigger world. So I, I think my bigger issue is, is that, you know, leading sales teams, et cetera, my, I'm always about respecting everybody in that value chain. And, you know, I think it doesn't matter what we do in banking or how we support customers. It's always about, it sort of takes a village. You say, you know, my team rely on other parts of the team. And the part where I'm quite often challenged, but then also very decisive as well, is that if somebody doesn't behave well towards another human, is that because I start with the premise that everyone comes to work to do a good job. And that if something goes wrong, it it isn't because they've just decided they're going to annoy you today. Um, And from that perspective, you know, I've had some times where, you know, some of your best salespeople, et cetera, um, who are delivering, you know, outstanding results and customers love them, et cetera, but their behaviours are such that they're impacting on others. And, you know, I've made some calls where I've just said, look, I just don't think, you know, you're you're the right fit, you know, and, and that's a tough call because, you know, it impacts on so many things. It impacts upon your own personal results and all of those. But I've tried to stay true to that. You know, it's like, you know, you've got a couple of chances, but if you don't treat people well, then, you know, I'm going to struggle, you're going to struggle with me and, um, and you know, and I just can't, I can't be an observer to that. Mm. I, it's interesting. I was just um, listening to Simon Sinek's The Infinite Game book the, this morning and the, the chapter I was listening to was on trust over performance and too often we 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 put so much emphasis on people's performance, like we even have key performance indicators, but he was talking about the, the trust, like the ability for people in the team to trust you is more important than the performance um and you know it's so it's, it's good you I guess like you said you give people a chance but in the end you've got to make a call it's like you're not the right fit for us yeah I, talking about your personal values I would imagine that had a bit to do with your involvement in the big issue do you want to chat a bit about how that came about and what you did for the big issue 
Yeah, look, such a fabulous organisation and they have the most outstanding um, uh, CEO and outstanding chair and all of those things. And, and um, I was fortunate enough to, to get involved in the early days of when they were launching the women's subscription. And the women's subscription came about because, as, as you can imagine, society doesn't always accept women standing on street corners in a, in a very respectful way. And also some people who have potentially come from um, you know, distress situations, they also have anxiety doing that. So Big Issue went down the path of could we create an environment where it was safe for women? And that might be where we, we they did a subscription model and, you, you know, you, you packed privately in a room when there was, you know, half a dozen people. And, you know, it helped, um, you know, some of the Big Issue colleagues start to gain confidence to get out and about as well. So I feel really privileged to have been part of all of that. Um, I, I, I do whatever I can. I'm, I work on their advisory board. We've just looked at um, some things in recent times about with the pandemic, as you can imagine, none of the none of the sellers have been able to get out on on you know, on the street and in doing, if they do, there's not the foot traffic as well. So, you know, what is the next evolution for it? It's just a wonderful organisation. And I love their mantra of, you know, a hand up, not a hand out. And, mm. and so, you know, I, I just feel very fortunate to have played any part with them. Yeah, excellent. Well done. Um, you you t just talked about the pandemic then and COVID. Uh, personally, what's been a silver lining for you with the pandemic? Well, you know, the thing that I've been amazed at, and I think, you know, and, and if you've been at NAB at IT, you, you would perfectly respect that things turn pretty slowly. Um, and that sometimes is change resistant from some of the people or just the systems or it's going to cost too much, etc. I've been I've been amazed at, at how fast the company and even our country has been able to move so quickly. You know, things like Zoom, you know, we didn't even really have Zoom or it was a bit optional or if you wanted to and all of those things. And then all of a sudden, literally overnight, we're all on Zoom and we're all on digital and, you know, our computers, you know, now we don't have to have one of those little things where you punch a number in and, you know, it's amazing what, what happened and how quickly it happened and also how quickly um, people embraced it. You know, so even those people go, oh, I'm never going to do that. Well, you might have to. Mm. Um, and, you know, we'll do we'll do that. So that's from a work perspective. And, you know, personally, I think, you know, it forced me to slow down a little bit, which is which is not a bad thing. Um, I'm from WA, as I said, so I haven't seen my family now for over two and a bit years. And um, but I, I probably it forced me instead of saying, oh, I'll, I'll ring my brother next week. I think if I get that thought bubble, I ring him now. Um, and I'm a little more spontaneous than than I was previously, because, you know, sadly, there has been some sadness with, um, you know, the pandemic, etc. And I'm always conscious of the fact of, you know, I don't want to push it down a week or two when I can do it now. And who knows in a week or two, what could have happened. Mm. So when you're not at work, what do you love doing? Oh, I love to garden. I really do love to garden. And you know why? Because, you know, I have some failures, don't get me wrong. I've had many a dried pot plant um, and I've bought myself, or well, actually my sister bought me a veggie pod. So I've got my own little market garden happening there. Um, but I like the fact that, you know, Mother Nature is just fabulous. You put something in and you watch it grow and, you know, and then you have to prune it and then you have to weed and you have to do all those sorts of things. And I think about it in terms of similar to teams. You know, I say to my team all the time, we all have to prune and 
fertilise and, you know, weed and do all those sorts of things to keep our teams fresh and alive and vibrant. Yeah, it's it's my happy place too, getting my hands it- in the garden and, you know, pulling out weeds. And yes. I, I hate pulling out weeds in a normal garden, but in a veggie garden, I, I love it. I don't, yeah. I don't know why the difference. I think you're nurturing something so it feels different. And I get excited about bees at the moment because, you know, we need bees and there's not many of them around. So when I see a bee, I get very excited because I'm thinking you're doing your job and I hope you're off there making lots of other bees. Yeah, every time I fill up the dog's water bottle, there's a there's a hose thing that I stick in it so the bees can escape. And my husband keeps going, what is that there for? I go, I've told you, so the bees don't drown. They've got a way yeah. to get it. That's it, we need the bees. We've got to look after the bees. Hey, um, a few more questions personally. If you could change one thing about you, what would it be? Oh, I'd have to say, um, and you've probably gleaned this already, I talk fast, I move fast, I act fast, and I can, that can come across sometimes as being a bit impatient. And I and and I don't I don't feel that, but I'd hate to think that, you know, I leave anybody behind. So I'm super conscious of that. I'm super conscious of my impatience because, you know, I, I'd hate somebody to think, you know, just because I've got it, I might have attuned to something quickly and I've moved on. So I've found myself, you know, as time's gone by, circling back from time to time, checking for understanding when I've asked somebody to do something, because I know I can come across as a woman in a hurry. <laughs> I love a woman in a hurry. Um, do you have a favourite quote? I have a couple actually, and that some of them are a bit bit naff, but I'm going to say for fun, I really like May's May West one. You only live once, but if you do it right, once is enough. <laughs> love that. Love, love, love it. I do love that. But then if I put on my little reflection, motivation and and serious hat, Helen Keller, this is one I've sort of always kept in mind, she says, a bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. Ah, nice. And then there's there's another one which I think, you know, has has played, played out for me as well, and it's a Mark Twain one. It says, 20 years from now you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the things you did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That reminds me, one of my favourites is a life lived in fear is a life half-lived. Let's right. just give it a crack. Did your mum, did your mum have a quote? Like, can you any can you remember anything from your mum that she would say or I, I don't know. I, I mean, we laughed, you know, my beautiful mum, we lost her when she was only 65. And I remember having to go home to Mel to Perth for the funeral and came back. And the next day I was tired and I was jet lagged and I was sad and I was all of those things. And I thought, you know, I'm just not ready to go back to work. And my sister called me and she said, What are you doing? And I said, Oh, I'm staying at home today. I feel a bit sad. And she said, you better be lying down because my mum used to say, if you can't go to school or if you can't do anything, you better be lying down. Oh, there you go. That's a that's a good one. Um, one other thing, you you, uh, you you probably know I'm the founder of Jargon Free Fridays, so I'm, I'm on a bit of a mission to reduce the unnecessary corporate jargon and acronyms we use. Do you, do you have one you hate that if you could wave a wand, you go, we are not using that word anymore? Pivot. Oh, oh my, thank God. I love you. I love you. I am pivot. so over pivot. Pivot. Pivot to me is a sprinkler. Yeah, yeah. Or that dance, that dance yeah. you do. Um, I, I, I was over pivot three years ago and then COVID hit and it was like, oh, my goodness me. Mm. 
yeah, yeah. Completely agree. I think it's just, you know, and, and some of them, it's like you could almost do jargon bingo, couldn't you? Even oh, if yeah. you, you listen to the radio or something and you hear new normal and all of this, oh, please. Oh, no, exactly. Yeah, Seriously, everyone stops to needs to stop pivoting. Um, okay, I'm going to end this interview with some quick fire sure. three questions that I ask everyone. Yes. What's the one meal you love cooking? I love to cook a roast. And you know why? Because you do all the bits that go with it. You've got to do the cauliflower cheese. You've got to do the gravy. You've got to do that. And it's just like this, you know, beautiful presentation with all bits and pieces. And I just love a good old-fashioned roast. Yeah. I like to do it on a Sunday lunch. How often do we do that? How traditional is that? Beef, lamb or chicken, what's your go-to? Well, you know, being in regional and agri, I have to do all. And you have to put pork in there as well, love. Okay, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, I can't have favorites. You can't have favorites. I'm getting, I'm getting the sense that you don't have favorites. Okay, your favorite eighties song or artist? Well, I, once again, I do have a bit of a favorite here. I love a bit of Phil Collins, Elton John, and a Bon jo- Jovi. But if you said favorite song, and I still love it to this day, if I hear it, is Karma Chameleon from the Culture Club. It makes oh. me. Feel- that that is a classic. I agree. There's some songs like that. They're just they're just timeless, and yeah, you, you gotta love a bit of Boy George. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. If, yeah. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20 year old self, what would it be, Julie? Relax. It's going to be great fun. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. That's some really good advice. So um, we're going to end on that. Julie Rinsky, thank you for being part of the Authentic Leadership Podcast. I know I now know why people recommended that you be part of this because it sounds like you're a bloody authentic leader, which is um, probably good when you're dealing with the regional and agri type because I reckon they would uh, they would call you out if you weren't. So thanks for being part of it. Thank you, Ralph. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Authentic Leadership Podcast. We welcome your suggestions for leaders you would like to hear from in future episodes.